Today, um, on the heels of Matthew's showstopper last week, we will be take, picking it up in um, Mark twi- uh, chapter 2, verse 18, is where we will be picking up our time today. And the question I want us to, to toss around and then do our best to answer and then ultimately let our text answer is this. Are there times where our diligence or our spiritual or religious fervor, um, where it blinds us to the reality that is right in front of us? Can you be so fixated on, uh, be it holiness or some spirituality, however you might define that, can you, can you be so focused on that that you can miss what's going on around you? I think we can. Um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I had the opportunity, well, through some connections to the table, which is the college ministry here, um, that Drew Moss heads up. My wife works for him and does campus ministry with him. Um, someone contacted her about a young lady, a freshman on campus um, from Tulsa, who, who's now at OSU, and she's having some troubles with her faith. She's going through some periods of doubt, and... Um, her friends were doing their best they could to kind of minister to her and encourage her and help her along. Um, but she was becoming increasingly hostile to those around her. And so um, someone who was connected to the table asked uh, Rachel if she wouldn't mind just meeting with her and having a conversation, seeing what, what we can do and what the problem is. Um, so Rachel uh, wasn't able to meet her but had a number of conversations on the phone with her. And um, it became apparent that she was just really um, somewhat rabid and uh, had some real um, issues that needed to be worked through. And so Rachel just said, hey, tell you what, um, how about we meet on campus? And do you mind if I bring my husband? Because he likes, ha- he likes these kind of questions. She's struggling with uh, a number of um, concerns or allegations or accusations she has against God. She said, my husband really likes these kind of conversations. And um, he is uh, someone who doesn't mind conflict. And she was... <laughs> she was uh, she was kind of beating Rachel down on the phone, and Rachel said, well, I'll tell you what, uh, we'll just put you and Ryan across the table and let you, you know, air it out. And so we went and met this young lady on, at the student union a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I just asked her, I said, tell me what, tell me kind of what's bothering you. Um, and she tried, and uh, I said, so why am I here? We're having coffee. I said, what do you want from me? I don't, I'm not here to just like, listen to someone complain. So what do you want? And she said, well, I just have hundreds of things that need to... I have hundreds of problems. with." She can't even finish a sentence. She's just got hundreds and so many. And the Bible is so inconsistent. And God is so mean and unloving. I've got hundreds of concerns that need to be answered. I said, okay. Um, we were done with our coffee by the time she finally got to that. So I said... Um, tell you what, I, I do enjoy, I, I kind of answered some of the questions that she was asking, but I said, if you've got 98 more, why don't you go home and write them all out? Type them all out and email them to me. And then, we can, uh, and then we can meet again and I'll do my best to answer them. I said, I might not be able to answer any of them to your satisfaction. I would guess that I could probably answer them to mine. Um, <laughs> And you might not like all of my answers, but I am more than willing to engage in the conversation. And so she said, that's fine. And I really didn't expect to hear from her. A couple of days later, she emails me. And I'll read you some of her concerns. This young lady, 19-year-old girl named Mackenzie, says this. This is one of her questions. Uh, by the way, she had hundreds. She could only think of five when it was time to type them out. <laughs> so here are, and I'm not teasing. I mean, I exaggerate. More than anyone. There you go. There's an exaggeration. <laughs> so I get it. Her first question was, I feel like God has a dashboard of buttons and randomly picks when people are going to die. Why do some people die and others don't when they were prayed for equally? And I thought, hey, that's a horrible first half of this question. Second half, pretty good, actually. Why do some people die when they are prayed for equally? She said, second question, why didn't God just not create the universe? 
He could have just hung out in infinity for eternity. And the, the assumption being, then we wouldn't have to deal with this evil issue. Pain, suffering. Third question. I feel like God created the earth for selfish reasons. He created the earth and then he gave us free will. He let Adam and Eve choose to bite the fruit. This lets sin into the world. So in my mind, horrible phrase to ever put in something like this. In my mind, because God knows straight up that they were going to sin, he set them up for failure and created them to sin. Okay? Question number four. I just don't see how creating earth, creating free will, and then watching the world burn is loving. Okay? Final question. God created the earth, let sin into the world, and then doesn't explain anything. Then, when we doubt and decide not to believe, we get sent to hell. How is that fair? So, um, she had hundreds of questions. She was able to muster five, and they're all the exact same question. And so I thought, okay, this young lady has a very severe problem with what theologians call the problem of evil. And in a nutshell, the problem of evil is this. God is both um, infinitely powerful and infinitely loving, and yet evil still exists. And so do you see the apparent contradiction? If he's loving, he should stop evil if he's able. And because he's infinitely powerful, he's able. And it doesn't appear as if he stops evil, therefore, he must not be loving. That's the root cause of her issue. That is what her deepest, deepest um, frustration with the Christian faith is. So I thought, okay. Uh, I enjoy having conversations about the problem of evil. Um, so I, I, I said, okay, let's come in, come into my office. Um, and she came in Thursday afternoon. And I said, well, let's, let's talk about this. I will do my best to answer your question. Now, when she got there, I said, this could go a couple of ways. I could give you a three-hour lecture, and um, I would probably find it fine. You would be bored to death, and we would move nowhere. So it's not going to help anyone if I just teach on the problem of evil. I said, what I find is usually more effective whenever it comes to helping someone change the way they think or explain something is to help them, guide them, as they discover a lot of the questions on their own. If I can, if I can not trick or manipulate is too strong of a word, but if I can teach Phil into discovering things in the text on his own, they'll stick. If it's just me, as a fire hydrant, dispersing information, most of it goes by the wayside. But if I can let him drink a little bit of water at a time on his own, then we can kind of work, get somewhere. So I told her, I said, I could lecture you for hours, um, and I don't think it'll help. On the other hand, what I like to do is I like to read good books with people. So I said, there's a great book on this subject. It's, it's not overly scholarly. It's, it's kind of middle shelf. It's N.T. Wright's um, Evil and the Justice of God. Great little book. I, I told her, this will not answer all of your questions. It will help. Um, it'll probably reframe your questions so that they're a little better, and then maybe answer some. So I told her, I said, if you're willing, I would love to just read a chapter with you each week. You read on your own, I'll read on my own, and we come together and we discuss, we debate. I assured her, you cannot offend me. I'm going to agree with many things in this book. You might not, at least not at first, or maybe not ever. You can't offend me. So come with your truest, most raw objections and let me have it and we'll just kind of talk it out. But that, that didn't really seem to satisfy her. Okay, well if you want, if, if, you, if you just want to kind of make this a quick meeting and then our, our relationship is over, I can answer your five questions. I'll, again, compound them into one real question and then help you understand kind of how I would answer that, both biblically or philosophically, however you want to do it, I can help you. She really didn't seem interested in that either. So I said, Mackenzie, what do you want from me? You know, some people want to ask questions and then hate the answer, argue with everything. And I thought that might be what I had with her. I said, okay, maybe the problem of evil isn't your problem. And so I started to ask her about her family. I realized she is coming at this from a, a position of a lot of pain in her life. Friends, parents who have died unnecessarily so. 
So she kept saying that her mom, her friend's mom, died during a very routine cosmetic surgery um, at the age of 50. And she said, that's too young. I said, why is that too young? She said, well, it's just, it's so wrong. I said, well, when is it old enough to die and it doesn't hurt anybody? And she didn't have an answer for that. I said, is 60 too young? 70, 80, 90, 100? At, she said, yes, at 100, that's fine. So at 100, you lose all meaningful relationships, and now your loss is no one's, like, it doesn't matter anymore? Well, no. I said, okay. Um, is it wrong to die at 40? Is it unloving for God to let someone die at 30, 20, back all down? And I eventually got down into, well, what if you're just an infant? You haven't really had time to form many meaningful relationships. You just have two, probably. No, that's, that's still wrong. Okay, well, what about if you're in the womb? Can you die then? Eventually, she's such a nihilist. She, I eventually got her back to, it's just better to not have existed. And I told her, that is an incredibly fatalistic, short-sighted way of looking at the world. So, and this is the wonderful thing about college freshmen. They have no idea when they're being set up. So I started to say, <laughs> I said, tell me about a time when you've really hurt your mom. Like you've deeply wounded her with your sin. She told me about a time. I said, what about your dad? Have you ever hurt him? Caused him great amounts of pain. Yeah. Um, you got a sister, older sister named Morgan. What about her? Yeah, she tells me about that. Do you ever cause any like um, breakdown in the relationship with your friends? Do some damage to that relationship? Are there any of that were never able to be restored? Yeah, she tells me about those. Okay. How much do you think it costs your parents to raise you? So just guess. What did it cost to feed you, clothe you, shelter you? Um, she, I had to delay the meeting for a week because she had wrecked her car and had to get a new one. So I said, you've wrecked two cars since you got to Stillwater. So add three cars to the cost. And now the cost of educating you. Guess, like, estimate what it has cost your parents to raise you. She said, ah, 200000 I said, that's probably quite low, actually. Most estimates say it's between two hundred and fifty dollars and $400,000 to raise an 18-year-old today. So it's probably low. I said, do you think your parents knew that it would, you would be expensive? Yeah. No one wants to say their mom's dumb, right? Yeah, she must have known. <laughs> do you think they knew that you would cause great pain, that you would disobey, that you would be hard for them at times, that you would do damage to others? I said, isn't it so strange that they chose to have you anyway? Because she wants to say that God, she said this in one of her questions, uh, well, Part C of one big question. She said, like, why didn't God just not create anything? Wouldn't it have been more loving to not create and avoid this whole sin and evil problem? And I asked her, would it have been more loving if your parents had not had you? Because you've caused problems. Their insurance has to be through the roof because of you. <laughs> You're very expensive. They knew that. You would cause deep, deep pain, and they knew that. And they had you anyway. That seems pretty loving to me. It would have seemed incredibly unloving for them to look at that cost and say, not worth it. We're not getting pregnant. But the problem is, like, I think that I have answered one of her questions satisfactorily. And she, it doesn't work for her. So I said, tell me more about your family. I'm totally confused about this girl. I think... One, I, it's, it's one of those situations where you've been talking so long, you think one of you is playing a joke on the other. I'm like, is, am I, is there like a hidden camera somewhere? This is nuts to me that someone could be so dense. I said, tell me more about your family. What's your, like, what is your mom, um, what does her Christian life look like? How is she a Christian? She said, well, I don't know if she is. She kind of has a lot of the same concerns I do. Okay. What about your sister? Well, my sister is something else. My sister is wonderful. She is the vice president of XYZ sorority. She is so kind. She's got so many friends. She's an incredible person. I said, okay. Tell me about your dad. Her dad's a youth minister, I find out. Um, wow, that's cool. Um, your dad's a youth minister. What does he do that is Christian? Like, how does one look at his life and say, Christian? I said, take job off the table. Imagine that he's not a pastor. What about his life says Christian? She said, well, he is incredibly good to us. He takes care of us. He is kind to us. He even goes to the store for my mom. 
I said, sweetheart, by that definition, every Muslim and Mormon is getting into heaven. That has nothing to do with being a Christian. Those things are good side effects of being a Christian. But if that's like the standard of this is how I can tell my dad is a Christian is that he's nice. I said, that's not like biblical in any sense of the word. I, I, I felt like I was getting somewhere with her. I said, okay, Mackenzie, tell me what the gospel is. And she said, well, the gospel is like you respond to a sermon and you say a prayer and then you live right the rest of your life. I said, bingo. That is the gospel from the pit of hell. That has nothing to do with Jesus. I realized right then that I had been trying to fix a dead person. All the while, I assumed, because she wants to talk about these things, that she's a believer. And when she finally said, I said, oh, this is great news, Mackenzie. You've never heard the gospel. And she did not think that that was funny or great news or anything. I said, this is wonderful because the truth is you've never rejected Jesus. You've rejected the stupid Midwestern American Jesus, which I reject too. And so I really like to be a little dramatic. And so I rolled my chair and I sat next to her. I said, I'm on your side on almost everything. If this is the gospel you have been told, I reject it outright too. It's ridiculous. And I went from incredibly um, frustrated with her to overwhelmingly joyful because now we have an opportunity to talk about the gospel. I have been talking to a dead person about eating their vegetables. It was ridiculous. And I told her, I'm not going to cast any judgment on your dad. You can do that on your own. You've never been told the gospel. Well, I went to church my whole life. Good job. Didn't mean anything. You've never been told the gospel. And so I, I, had, I had bought her this, this book, this Evil and the Justice God book, and, and I gave it to her and I said, look, we're not reading that anymore. You can keep it, read it on your own, it's good, but th that's going to be a waste of our time. We need to talk about the gospel. And so I reached up on my shelf and I pulled down the King Jesus gospel and I gave her my copy and I said, you read this, uh, read the first couple of copies, and, um, or the first couple of chapters, and um, I'll go buy another copy and then I'll read it. You let me know after you've read a couple of chapters and we'll talk about it. Listen, you're probably going to be on these conversations, so start reading. Um, <laughs> but I was so excited because I had been trying to reform her, but she had never been transformed. I had been trying to shore up a dead person. And she thought it was really weird that I kept, from that point forward, calling her a corpse. But I just said, like, <laughs> I promise this will disturb you. But I need you to understand how far apart you and I are on these issues is because one of us has the spirit and the other one doesn't. And that is no fault of your own. We are going to do everything we can to rectify that problem. I said, we're going to talk about the gospel. We're, I'm going to hope that you can encounter Jesus for the first time in a real way. Um, and she was a little unnerved by how excited I was. But um, when I, it was shocking to me that I'm having this conversation last week before we start to read um, Mark verses 18 through 22. Well, we're not talking about the problem of evil, but we are talking about the problem of fasting when it's inappropriate to do so. Um, I'll just start reading. We're only going to do these, these few verses. Um, verse 18, Mark 2 says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So stop there make sure we're clear on all these terms. John's disciples and the Pharisees would not have necessarily um, got along too well, but they would have had a similar aim in mind. They would have had a similar vision statement. If these are corporations and they've got to have a vision and a mission and all these things that have to be listed on websites, theirs would have been very similar. The Pharisees, we talked about them last week in the sanctuary. Um, if you were here about a year ago, we did a, a short series called The Theology of Paul the Apostle, and we talked um, once about how he is a pharisaical apostle and how that is in many ways a good thing. Um, the Pharisees were a group of men that by this point had grown to be a rather substantial group of men in and around Jerusalem who um, had a, a certain zeal about them. They loved the law. Um, what they were doing, I think, is they were living in response to three chapters, in many cases, Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. 
Deuteronomy 28 and 29. Now this, this is the, the, the section of Scripture right when Moses is leaving and Joshua is taking power and they're about to head into the Promised Land. So long before um, the events when the nation splits and the kings do their bad things and then everyone goes into exile. Long before. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, it says, you will go into exile. Why? For failing to uphold the law. For failing to remain faithful to the covenant cut at Sinai when God gives the law to the nation and so defines them as a nation and says, this is what you will do. The, the resounding theme of Deuteronomy is, do these things so that you will live long in the land. He said, I'm going to give you the land that I promised your forefather Abraham. I'm going to give you what I promised to him, but it is conditional. It's not just yours because you're a descendant of Abraham. John the Baptist and Jesus had similar things to say later on, but it's not just yours because you're a descendant of Abraham. It's yours because as descendants of Abraham, you will follow the Mosaic law. And so Deuteronomy is the second telling of the law, and it's this idea that you follow the law of God given at Sinai, and he will give you the promised land. But in those two chapters it says, and failure to uphold the law will result in the land being removed from you. Now that looks out, it looks like not the land being removed, but the people being removed from it. And so in 722 and 586, the north and south respectively are conquered, and the south goes into captivity. And so the south in the 6th century BC um, and into the early part of the 5th, um, well, no, 6th century, they are in Babylon. So this is where you get some of the biblical writers, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then you have the, some of the minor prophets that, that come back. They're in Babylon saying Deuteronomy 28 and 29 came true. God was not kidding when he said failure to obey his law will result in punishment and a removal of the promised land. Now this is not God saying, well, Catherine lusted once and so she's out. It is hundreds of years of brazen unfaithfulness. And God is infinitely patient and he finally says that's enough. You need to leave. Now Deuteronomy 30 says that this will result in restoration. God will discipline you, send you into exile, so that you will learn to obey, so that he can purify you and make you again a holy nation and bring you back. And this is the time that the Pharisees are living in between Deuteronomy 29 and 30. They are saying, God has disciplined us, and we need to live holy, upright, obedient lives so that God will again come and be with us in a very special way, so that the day of the Lord prophesied in Isaiah and Zechariah 14 will finally come to bear. And the Pharisees, though they did return to the land, they said this isn't really what it's supposed to be. And so they're still sitting in the first century when Jesus is walking around, John the Baptist is walking around, still sitting in Jerusalem saying, we are not fully out of exile yet. We don't even have a king. We have Caesar in this Herod fool. We are occupied by Rome. We are still in some sense being punished because of our disobedience. So the Pharisees were a group of men who said, we need to beckon God to return, to usher in the day of the Lord, to maybe even create a situation where the Messiah will finally come. And we need to do so by being very holy and living strict and lawful lives, obedient to the law. And uh, so much so that they thought that they, the Pharisees did not, um, did not tear down the law. They built up helps around it. They made laws that would help you obey laws. They were so serious about it. Now, again, John's disciples would not have been the best of friends with the Pharisees, mostly because every time John sees them, he has some angry words to call them snake babies and other things. So he's not, he's not really trying to form an alliance with the Pharisees. But they have a similar idea. The Pharisees want to reform Judaism. They want it to go back to this very strict, righteous life. And for that, I can't fault them. I think we could learn a lot from them in that sense. John's disciples wanted to reform Judaism too. That's why they're out in the wilderness offering a baptism of repentance so that you could turn from your evil ways. Both of them are addressing a Jewish populace that has grown lazy in their care and their zeal for the law. You have a relatively apathetic group of people. Uh, my stepmother is from the island of Cyprus, so that's very far eastern uh, Mediterranean, kind of the armpit of the Mediterranean. 
South side is Greek, primarily Greek Orthodox. North side is Turkish, primarily Muslim. But I am carefully, uh, I am careful to quickly point out that is usually a nominal Islam, cultural Islam. And I see in the the northern Cypriots, the Turkish Cypriots, um, so they would be related to the mainland of Turkey. I see in them probably a, a similar disposition that the Pharisees and John's disciples would have encountered in, um, in first century Palestine. People that are resting on their cultural inclusion into a group. In many cases, an ethnic inclusion. That would be the same with the, many of the Turkish Cypriots. So you even hear, when I'm over there, I hear at all hours of the day and night the call to prayer from the mosques. I just don't really see anyone doing it. Um, they won't do it there because it's very taboo. But when some of the Turkish Cypriots have come to the U.S. to visit us, they very much like bacon. And uh, I always kind of go out of my way to share some. So um, I'm not kidding. I have a cousin from over there. His name's Farad. And whenever we took him, when he first came over here to go to graduate school, he, he went camping with us. And I am not kidding. We cooked two pounds of bacon over a campfire. And he was gobbling it up. It was wonderful. So they are nominal Muslims at best. And I think this is the same. Um, I, I, you, get, you get a very serious cleric from Saudi Arabia in northern Cyprus, and they are frustrated. They don't know what to do with you. How could you live like this? You're so lazy. You don't even care. That's the Pharisees and that's John's disciples. They cared so much that they still thought that the Lord needed to return and that we need to reform Judaism, and in the meantime, we'll fast. It's important to remember that in ancient Judaism, there's only one required fast per year, Day of Atonement. All other fasts are situational, um, even recommended, but not mandatory. The Pharisees were known for fasting quite often, as often as once a week, sometimes even twice a week. They took it very seriously. They thought that we need to discipline ourselves so that we have a proper understanding of who God is, what He expects of us, and how we can get Him to come back. We have Herod's temple, but it's not full of God's presence. That is quite clear. God is not with us as he used to be, so we're going to do everything we can to bring it back. So we fast. John's disciples, very similar idea. We fast. It says, they were fasting, and then people came to him. This is Jesus. Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That's the question. What is the um, assumption behind that question? Mm -mm. It's the state of the entire nation is at stake on this sort of issue. Yes. God is going to punish them, not just because, you know, he's not just going to punish me individually. He's going to punish the nation. Yeah. And therefore, if my thought is you're doing something, it's not just going to hurt you. It's going to hurt my family. It's going to hurt our entire nation here. And I, I, I don't think they saw it just as, okay, well, God will punish that. <coughs> no, it's a very much of a collective effort. And so they look at Jesus and they say, what are you doing? You're supposed to be a religious leader. You didn't go to rabbinical school, but you have a following. And you're, such, you're apparently a really good teacher and some sort of a healer. You have a following. You have influence. Why do you not take the law seriously? We're fasting. John's disciples are fasting. The Pharisees are fasting. Jesus, you're out here having a party at Levi's house. Why don't you take it seriously? Do you not know that we have to do everything we can to become pure so that God will return? Look at Jesus' reply. He has three answers. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus, in effect, says, you're fasting so that God will come. Does it make sense to keep fasting if he's here? And they would not have missed this. He says, why would you go to a wedding and not celebrate? Why the long face? Why do you refuse to eat? Just as an aside, this is one of those passages 
where I am all for um, restriction and a limited diet and doing all the health stuff, right? Doing what is appropriate for the body to work properly. Totally for it. I am against abusing people with it. So if I am going out to Phil, or going out with Phil to have a meal or whatever, and we need to talk about something serious, and I'm on a nice, psychotic little 900 calorie diet, <laughs> but Phil wants to go to the garage and eat. It is my, I'm convinced, so this is Ryan's conviction, not the Lord's. I am convinced that it is my godly responsibility to break my diet and share a meal with this man. I'm convinced that eating together is a social custom that we have gotten rid of, and it is very, very um, holy to share a meal with someone. I love having people in my house for dinner. I always believe that the Spirit is in some special way present when believers share a meal together. And so I am all for, if I'm going to go somewhere, and, and um, actually I'll, I'll go the other direction. So Sharon Doherty, she's the counselor here. She has a diet that basically restricts her to water and wood. It's ridiculous. She's allergic to every other thing. Um, she's allergic to all of God's goodness when it comes to food. And she has a very, very restricted diet. And I think that it's important for us to um, empathize with her in certain times. When I'm sharing a lunch with Sharon, I eat what she's eating. Now, sometimes I've traveled with her and Suzanne before, and sometimes I really can't because Sharon brings like 47 pounds of tuna in her suitcase, and so she has this really crazy diet. But when we go out to like an actual restaurant where human beings frequent, and we, and we, we go and eat, I will get the boiled chicken too. Like that's what Sharon has, and you know, some raw green beans, and then a piece of maybe a, a lettuce leaf. And diet water, that's what we'll have. And, and I will eat like that with her. I think that we see something with Jesus here that says there are times when you need to get over your natural um, inclinations and you need to recognize what's in front of your face. Phil has something serious to talk about. I don't need to make him feel bad because he wants a burger by me saying, no thanks, I'm going to have three pieces of lettuce and half a grape. I'm like, no, I'm going to eat with Phil. And we're going to have a great time. You start to eat with people like that, you'll be shocked how much friendship actually develops. Yes? I think about the Ethiopian wars that, you know, they chop the goat in front of them and they have to eat them. And, um, and Jay got dysentery for life. But you can't not eat with everybody. You can't? In, in, uh, in certain parts of the Middle East, it's actually rude not to burp after your meal. It's a sign that I enjoyed what you made me. Like, I, I had a professor, uh, he's still on campus, Professor Bill Basie. He's from Jordan. And uh, every time he, he and his wife, who's very um, kind of, I don't know where Suzanne's from. I don't know where she's from originally, but she is not Jordanian. Um, every time they go over there, she is just kind of alarmed when when Moe's manners go out the window. I mean, he just kind of unbuckles his pants and burps at every meal as loud as he can. He said, this is how you thank the cook in Jordan. This is how you thank the cook. So anyway, we're getting way off topic. That's interesting, but... <laughs> Jesus tells them, why fast at a wedding? That's ridiculous. Now, we also need to, to recognize that he says there will be a time when fasting will be appropriate. He doesn't say fasting wasn't appropriate. He just says it's not now. And then he's quick to say, and it will be again soon. Now, why does he use this wedding analogy? And I think that it would have landed hard on, the, uh, on, the, uh, on his audience. His audience are not necessarily John's disciples and the Pharisees. There are those who are kind of the go-between. If you look back at uh, Isaiah 25... This is some very prominent imagery that is both used here in Isaiah and then is grabbed again in Revelation. It says in Isaiah 25, verse 6, talking about this future um, existence where death will no longer reign. might not even exist. It says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food 
a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. The future where God would again return and put all evil. This is the conversation I need to have with Mackenzie soon. When God comes back, it will be like this incredible party, this feast. And I think Jesus is um, not being all that subtle when he says, and that time is now. Why fast? Oh, because you want God to return? You're ready for this feast to take place? Let me tell you a little story about me being here and the wedding. Me being here and the wedding. So, you would not fast at a wedding banquet, and fasting is good when appropriate. Now, why would he instruct his followers to fast after he's gone? After the ascension, why fast? To discipline oneself. I think not only fasting, but all forms of discipline in some sense. Prayer. I mean, I think just think of the kind of the classical spiritual disciplines. Prayer, fasting, solitude, community, silence, uh, study, um, generosity. There are lots of ways where we can um, stretch ourselves beyond our, our natural inclinations so that we can see a greater picture of who God is and what he's called us to do. After all, what were the Pharisees trying to do? They were trying to understand who God is, what he wants for them, and how they should live right now. I wonder if our fasting, our prayer, our study, our generosity, our silence, our all these things, I wonder if that's to help us understand who God is, who we are, and what he would have us do in the meantime. Help shape your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the idea is like we need to use these tools or these disciplines as a way to get us away from the world a little bit and kind of refocus on him and what he's calling us to do. Yeah. I even think that we can line up with the Pharisees and with John's disciples in the sense that um, they wanted God to come. They wanted him here. I too want God to come. I want him here ready for it to be done. Who wouldn't love to skip death and just see Jesus return? So we pray, we fast, we beg these things. I, can't, I cannot see any a possible um, result other than... So say you engage in the, in the discipline of meditation. Not, like, don't get all freaked out about some, like, Eastern spirituality. Just straight up biblical meditation, recitation, like, deep study. It's more like the idea of finding small sections of either scripture or prayers and centering down on them, becoming consumed by them. Meditate on the Lord's Prayer for an hour a day for a month. And tell me your heart will not be more shaped around the gospel. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Tell me you won't have a greater reverence for his name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Tell me you won't have a greater obsession with the kingdom of God spreading all over the earth. Give us this day our daily bread. Tell me you won't have a greater dependence on his supplying your every need. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Tell me you won't understand your sin better 
and hate your sin more and ask for forgiveness more often and tell me you won't be more willing to extend it to others. Deliver us from evil. Tell me you won't be more sensitive to the temptations of this world. Meditate on the Lord's Prayer for a long time, for a long time, multiple days in a row. I only think that your heart can become more shaped around the gospel. So like Jesus, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. That's the ascension. And then they will fast in that day. I wonder if he's saying there is a time for disciplining ourselves. There is a time when Jesus leaves. That We see this in the apostles in Acts. That the, um, the persecution comes, the trial comes, the, the pain and suffering of this world must be dealt with. After all, they're healing people from death. Paul preached a sermon so good a guy fell out of a window. Or boring, one of the one direction. <laughs> there are things in this world to deal with. But I wonder if fasting and prayer and meditation and silence doesn't help prepare us for the things like when Stephen is killed. When uh, James is thrown off the temple. When all but John of the original apostles dies a pretty gruesome death, apparently. They tried to, the church tradition says they tried to boil John alive, but he wouldn't die. So someone's like, I don't think I would have rather died. But I'm glad he didn't read the book of Revelation. Paul's killed, executed. Peter's executed. I wonder if the time for fasting when Jesus is gone helps us better deal with those ideas. With the fact that just today there are you know, this was a big issue last week. How many people are still in slavery, like human trafficking today? How many people of any religious persuasion are still being killed? What will it look like in this country whenever our religious freedoms are slowly stripped away? I'm convinced they will be. Totally ready to go into a period where the church is quite persecuted, even here at home. And I'm not scared of it because I'll be able to fast and pray because I have the Spirit, we'll make it. I think the church will probably come out stronger. Jesus goes on and he says in two other ways. He says, just as it's ridiculous to fast at a wedding, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. He said, you don't take an old shirt and put a brand new piece of cotton on it and expect that patch to hold. After some laundering, it will shrink and tear away. And in the end, both are ruined. <coughs> where are you getting, where are you going with this, Jesus? He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. When you made some wine, it's still technically in the fermentation process. As it ages, it will expand. Gases will be released. You don't put this into an old bladder and expect that thing to hold up. You've got to put it in a new, unstretched wineskin so that it can stretch with the new wine. Jesus is drawing our eye to a very clear idea that says the new is altogether incompatible with the old if all you're trying to do is reform the old. What Jesus is saying is, I am not here to make a better Judaism. I'm not here to bring back a strict obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. I'm here to inaugurate something altogether new. We call it the kingdom. He says you cannot put the wine of the kingdom of God into the wineskin of the Mosaic Law. And much of the Mosaic Law will be upheld in the New Covenant. But he says, you guys are at best kind of right. But you're trying to reform Judaism. I was trying to fix Mackenzie. I thought she needed a better philosophical answer to the problem of evil. I thought she was like every one of us, and she just needed a good answer to this. She needs some information that'll help her. I'll encourage her with her faith. I was trying to reform her when she needed to be transformed. 
I was working on someone who does not have a heart that loves God. At best, she has a mind that knows some things about him, and even those things, it's quite clear, are quite confused. I was trying to bother with a dead person, talking to them about their workout regimen. And so I, again, I just started referring to her as a corpse. And uh, she, I don't know that she liked much of what I had to say, but it was, it was quite clear. Your problem is not with evil. Your problem is with Jesus. You have no idea who he is. And I'm so looking forward to an opportunity to have these conversations with you. I'm so looking forward to, he, to watching you experience the gospel for the first time. She was really unnerved by how excited I got as the conversation went on. Because again, I went from diligent. I was a good Pharisee. We can fix this. We just need to put some things in place. We need to give you some information, give you a tract maybe, and then we'll, get, we'll figure all this out. I'm going to start pulling books off the shelves and we're going to fix your philosophical problem. I was very diligent. We're going to work our way out of this problem. And then as my efforts were continually shot down, I, she noticed I was becoming quite frustrated with her. She's like, you're one of those people that just likes to talk and never listen. I know what that's like. I'm one of them. Um, I thought, no, like, what answer will satisfy you? And I found out quickly, none. So I'm quite frustrated. And she's getting frustrated with me, being frustrated with her, and this vicious loop. Then when I figured out she had never experienced Jesus and never heard the gospel in its entirety, I went straight up to maximum excitement. Which, again, bothered her because um, it's quite clear that there's a difference between us. But I'm excited because, Mackenzie, you now get to encounter Jesus for the very first time. I am so excited because you haven't rejected Jesus. You've rejected a bad, a bad, bad version of him, a silly version of him. And uh, I kind of went into wedding celebration mode. I'm giving her all these books. I'm so excited. We're going to have this conversation. You're going to see Jesus for the first time. This is going to actually cause a problem between you and your family, but that's okay. We'll talk about that. We are going to, like, we're going to encounter Jesus. And uh, it made me wonder, how often do I do that on accident and never get to the encounter Jesus part? How often am I really diligent to fix someone's problem with these kind of peripheral answers? When the answer really is to get back down to the core of the problem, the gospel, and it's a confusion of what the gospel actually is. So, I went from um, diligent to depressed to excited. And I think Jesus was telling the Pharisees and John's disciples, it is time to be excited. You don't even know what's in front of your face. God has returned. The reason you're fasting is, come, I'm here. Stop it. Be excited. I wonder how often we get that excited for the kingdom. We'd, I wish we could have just gone and had class in the sanctuary because we just missed three baptisms. But uh, Tom and Rhonda Houston just got baptized. and Many of you probably know them. Does that get you excited? It should. Like, I love baptisms. They're my favorite thing in a service by far. First of all, I'm always racing to see if I can be the first one to clap. It's just a little game I play with myself. <laughs> I beat you all. Um, but I love it because it's one of those things in the service. I can participate in worship. We get that. I can participate in the sermon in some sense because I have an obligation to hear it, in, internalize it, and respond to it. I can participate in communion and in giving and in prayer, all these things. This is not a show from the stage. This is a big participation. But I love baptism because the Houstons just said in there, like, we commit to following Jesus. And this is our public declaration that we are now on his side. They, I think they've been believers for a while, but they have defected from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. They are now for God and for the things that God is for. And uh, to be baptized is to say to a room full of people, this is what we're doing, and it's your job to hold us accountable to it. That's why I love a baptism, because it's me out there in the pews saying, yes, you are my brother and sister, and what you just promised to do, to love Jesus and obey Him and do everything, 
I'm going to hold you to that. And I expect you to do the same thing to me. When it comes to sin in our lives, the best thing you can do is reflect on your baptism. You died, and then you rose again. Dead to sin, alive in Christ. I love those things. Do you take great joy when you see someone be baptized? Another little kid got baptized. Zane, Zane just baptized a, a young a fourth grader, I think. Does that, like, get you pumped? I think if you understood kind of the context of, um, or if you understood what's going on when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is at hand, it should get you excited. But finally, I want to point out this, this text also presses on us. Jesus said, when I'm gone, there will be time for fasting. And I'm just going to expand that word to mean to do spiritual disciplines. How well do we do that? How much do you long for the kingdom to come in its finality? To come completely so? How often do you pray Maranatha? I do every time my kids won't go to bed. Jesus, come back now. Like, how often do you pray, come Lord Jesus, please come back. Put an end to all of it. And uh, do you fast? Fasting is not technically um, an, a command in the New Testament, by the way. It just says, and when you fast, fast like this. It assumes you will. Do you fervently pray that God would do amazing things? That the kingdom of God would come in the lives of your kids? Or in family members that don't know him? Or on that big campus that's full of unbelievers? I think of the believers that work on this campus and pray for them. Because while there are probably more believers on campus than you think, they're still way outnumbered. And so think of professors and administrators and employees of every department on campus and say, like, that is an uphill battle. I work with, I believe everybody I work with is saved. We have some questions, but uh, I kind of, Alyssa, you're on the list. I'm just kidding. Uh, so it's almost like uh, maybe everybody but me works in an area that is to some degree hostile. Do you fast for your friends? Do you pray for them? Do you study God's Word to see what He might have you do in their lives? How the kingdom of God might expand? How you might invite them to this wedding that you get to feast at? So, so we can ask the question, or we can answer this question. Our initial idea was, does our diligence ever blind us to the reality in front of us like it did for the Pharisees and for John's disciples? And at times it does. It took me a long time to figure out Mackenzie. I was trying to put a Band-Aid on a head wound, and it wasn't going to work. So our final like, takeaway questions are, where does our joy um, in light of the kingdom need to grow? I hope you get excited at baptisms. And at the same time, where do we need to be more diligent? And pray and fast for those we love. And those you don't. Actually, I, I much more admire someone who can pray for someone they hate. So that's, that's kind of all the ideas that are swirling around those few verses in Mark, Mark 2. Um, any final thoughts? Anybody like, have a, a, an experience fasting that you would mind sharing. I love, because this is the discipline no one does, right? Um, it's kind of like the Sabbath. No one, everyone pretends it's real, no one does it. Um, anybody ever fasted and like, really felt God work? I would spend reading the word and um, 
that was by far, I would say, um, the, I, I don't know how to say it, like the most in sync I felt hmm. with Christ. Um, you know, uh, it was it was awesome. I noticed a lot of sin I struggled with kind of went to the wayside. Um, hmm. The struggles didn't seem as strong. Um, I seemed more kingdom-minded, focused on others. Uh, of course, it wasn't perfect, obviously, but um, it was it was awesome. It really was. That's um, cool. So, I mean, that's not, you know, it's different for everybody. Sure. You know, it's not like TV was bad. In fact, you know, yes, there's a lot worse things out there than ESPN, I suppose. But, um, yep. Well, not anymore. Fun. ESPN's horrible now. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. Um, but it's just something I felt Lord putting on my heart at the time. Hmm. And so I did, and I, I felt like I went into college um, just prepared for a different animal. Again, in high school, it was pretty sheltered, you know, in the youth group and everything. And college, didn't know anybody and um, had no friends, had no connections. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like I had a good start. That's awesome. And there can be times where it's clarifying, too. So it can be really beneficial. You're about to hear, um, we're, we have a guest coming to preach today, and he's a professor at Ozark. And one of Jim's favorite stories about uh, Mark Scott is that um, his daughter was diagnosed with diabetes. Um, and he, pray, or he fasted every single Wednesday for one year and prayed that God would heal her of diabetes. He saw in Scripture that Paul asked God for a very limited amount of time that he would heal him of these afflictions. And God said no, and Paul accepted that as the answer. So Mark Scott said, I'm good, he's just committed, I'm going to fast every Wednesday for a year and pray that God will heal my daughter of diabetes. And at the end, whatever the answer is, I'm fine with it. And he didn't heal her. And Mark is fine. And I think what... It, Perhaps what it did is it didn't, didn't fix his daughter, but it fixed Mark's heart so that he could rest in God's provision for his daughter. And I hear stories like that. I hear stories like Chase. And I'm like, why do I not do this? Do I like bacon so much that I can't sacrifice something for a brief period of time, put things in place such that I would know God more? Something to think about. Um, and then, of course, the um, there's a number of books on spiritual disciplines, and I won't bother you with all the various titles. But they all have, I think they're just trying. To, the publishers are trying to cover themselves. They all say, "Before you fast, consult a medical professional." So, um, but I know that Jim has asked a doctor before he's done one of his psychotic, you know, multi-week fasts, and then he just ignores the doctor. But he asks, and then ignores him. So um, there is that route. Um, something to definitely consider and talk to um, your fellow believers about what it might do to discipline yourself in that way. So, anything else? Oh, yes. Um, I don't know how much you like spaghetti. Speaking of fast, I don't know how much you like spaghetti, but that's really beside the point. The, right after the, both services, so they're doing one right now, but right after the next service, they'll be having a spaghetti lunch. It's in the college room now. I think it might move into the hub, so the room just on the other side of these boards. Um, the spaghetti will be good, breadsticks, all that stuff. Um, but again, that's not the point. The point is it's a donation. Um, whatever is donated for the meal will go to subsidizing costs for the college mission trip to Albuquerque. So... Um, the college ministry goes to Albuquerque every spring break to work with a church plant out there called New City Fellowship. Just New City? Okay. So they do lots of work with um, a great church doing ministry in a very difficult city to do ministry. Um, and as you know, college students don't have money. So uh, while there still is a cost, it's several hundred dollars to go, these, um, these fundraisers bring that overall cost down for the students. So... Um, or just give a $20 bill to a college student. Either way, do it your way. Um, so that'll be right after the service. I think that's all. Let me pray for us, and we will be done. God, we are grateful for your church. 
grateful for the kingdom that creates it and for the life we find inside of it. Teach us to, to see the good things that you bring and to rejoice. Give us hearts that are quick to celebrate just how good you are and then give us uh, hearts that are willing to sacrifice for uh, the things that need to be done between now and the time you return. Make us sensitive to the needs around us. Make us sensitive to the areas where your kingdom has not moved yet and teach us to love both your people and those that are not yet or will never be yours. Show us just how well we should celebrate and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.